It had already been a bad day for Paul Letts, but things just got worse. Author Max Lucado cites San Antonio newspapers that reported that Mr. Letts suffered a terrible fall and was rushed to a San Antonio hospital with a punctured lung, broken ribs, and internal bruising. But as Mr. Letts lay on the operating table awaiting surgery, the two physicians assigned to save his life began arguing about which one of them should have the honor of sticking a tube in this patient's crushed chest cavity. The argument turned into a shoving match, and they were throwing each other around the room to Mr. Letts's dismay, and he cried out, Please, somebody save my life. While these two physicians fought like grade schoolers at recess, two other doctors thankfully stepped in and saved the patient's life. In that operating room, let's think about it from a unique angle here. In that operating room, there was one set of circumstances but two radically different perceptions of reality. Perceptions which could not be equally valid. Would you want to argue that the two fighting doctors were free to perceive reality however they chose and that no one had any right to judge their perception invalid? If you were dying on the operating table, would you not plead that someone save your life? which I think really is a plea that these two men would wake up to reality. They were out of touch, not seeing the situation as they should. Yet ironically, we see this in a situation of life and death so clearly, but ironically, we live in a culture in which people incessantly argue that when it comes to one's philosophy of life, when it comes to one's religious belief, well, then any perception of reality you happen to choose is equally valid, and it's, in fact, safe, because no one can really get hurt. Jesus Christ taught his followers the exact opposite. The Bible teaches there is only one reality and that we all suffer to the degree that we fail to perceive the universe or to filter and interpret life in sync with that ultimate reality. We need to understand this about the Bible's message. It is not one perception of reality, but speaks to us as the only perception of reality. The Bible is a message from God intended to reveal what that reality is, how we are to think about it, and how we are to live in sync with it. And so my intention this morning is to summarize that message so that we leave today with a basic sense of the Christian worldview, of the Bible's sense of what reality is. An honest and thorough study of the Bible reveals four major themes that make up a foundational grid through which reality is perceived. For simplicity's sake, I will draw text only from three books of the Bible. If you're not familiar where all the books of the Bible are, you may just listen in. If you do have a Bible near you or with you today, we're going to make that easy in part by looking just at the first book and the last book 
and the book of Romans. So if you can find the book of Romans, the other two are quite easy to find or just listen in as we talk through various passages that lay out this basic grid of understanding the world. The first aspect is creation. The first aspect of a Christian worldview is creation. To state it, the one and only eternal God spoke the physical universe into existence out of nothing. This is the Bible's teaching. And if you will turn to the very first verse of the Bible, we find in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first sentence of the Bible explodes out of the gate and it polarizes every reader. This sentence serves something like a razor-sharp wedge, and it drives everyone off one side or the other. Either you will believe this statement and forever see the universe as God's creative handiwork, or you will spend the rest of your life in active rejection of the notion that God is creator. It's one or the other. We might ask the question, indeed, why do evolutionists care so much about how the world got here? Why does it really matter? Throughout the world, we have scientists who spend their entire careers seeking to prove the evolutionary origins of the universe. Yet, do you understand, none of that work or thinking has anything to do with scientific discovery. It's not necessary to believe in evolution in order, for instance, to discover gravity or something like that. It has nothing to do with anything and what we accomplish, yet people give their entire careers to proving origins, though it doesn't affect any work for anyone in one sense of the term, that is, as far as discovery is concerned. And every scientist will spend some time dealing with origins in their training somewhere. Imagine if all of that time of all of those gifted people was put together to find a cure for cancer, to find a cure for AIDS, to do something that would really help people. But all of this energy invested in figuring out how we got here. Why? Is it pure curiosity? I don't think so. I think the reason is the answer that we give to the origin of the universe profoundly influences how we perceive everything in that universe. Such that those who control the answer to origins control the direction a society will take. And I don't think it's any novel discovery for any of us here to know that the wheel on the car of this culture is firmly in the hands of those who say there is no God. At least God has nothing to do with the origins of this universe. What we must know about the biblical worldview is that God is the creator of all things. He has everything to do with this universe. And we will either reject that notion for the rest of our life and seek to defend our rejection, or we will embrace this truth that God is the creator. There is much mystery in how he has created this universe, and we won't seek to even address that issue here. But we cannot understand the Bible's worldview apart from understanding that God is the creator, and that changes everything. We won't mention it much at all here or or spend any time on it, but just note in the text in Genesis 1 how God created the universe. In verse 3 it says of Genesis 1, and God said. In verse 6, and God said. We see the same phrase in verse 9, verse 11, 
verse 14, verse 20, verse 24. God speaking the world into existence. Hebrews 11.3 confirms that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What we see did not come out of, was not generated by what is visible. But it came from the mouth of God, the creative breath of the Lord. Colossians 1 says, All things were created through Him and for Him, and in Him all things hold together. He is the glue that holds it all in place. The crowning creative act is found in verse 26, where we find God speaking again and saying, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In chapter 2 and verse 7, we read that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The breath of God breathing in, animating, giving life to the creature made in his image, mankind. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, God the Creator acts like a creator. He has given a particular design to his creatures, has a particular purpose, and knowing him and being made in his likeness, God gives to Adam a very specific moral command. Verse 15, and indeed a habitat. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, and of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God lays out here a specific command, putting Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, but he lays out here a specific command by which they may choose to love God. Were they never given the choice to do what is wrong? They could argue, God doesn't give us a choice. We have to love Him. We have to do what is good. We, can't not, we cannot choose what is evil in any way, shape, or form. But God gives them one simple command. They have paradise in front of them. But one command that will permit them to actively choose to love God and to obey His Word. One thing that is off limits. Let's stop for a moment and reflect. What do we learn at this place and this theme carrying out through the Bible? We learn that God is the source, the architect, and sustainer of the physical universe. The created order, then, the physical world that we see, announces God's wisdom and wonder and majestic glory as the ultimate reality, Psalm 19. God breathed his life into human beings, created us with dignity in his likeness in order that we might exercise faithful stewardship of the earth in communion with God. And God assigns to us our habitat, our family structure, our occupation and moral responsibilities, filling our lives with meaning. 
Charles Coulson's book on this very theme, he quotes William Provine of Cornell University, and I'll, Lord willing, quote further from him at the end of the sermon today, but he argues that the only reason that anyone believes life has ultimate meaning is that they have not yet grasped the full implications of Darwinism. In other words, if we come to understand that we came out of nothing by chance, the only legitimate conclusion is that life has no meaning. Let me say in response to that that all who grasp the full implications of creation are in touch with the reality that life has ultimate meaning because it is rooted in the nature of our Creator. There is a purpose with which we have been created. There is a reason to live. I talked some time ago to an evolutionist friend, and he was an intellectual man, and we talked often, and he said to me, I think very honestly one day, I can't buy your view of the Bible and your view of the world, but one thing I envy, you have a reason to get up in the morning. He was an intellectual at the university who was coming to terms with these very themes. Believing that he came out of nothing by chance, he thought there was really no reason to get up in the morning. But rooted in the fact that God is our creator, that we are made in his image and can walk in fellowship with him in this world, gives us all the meaning we could possibly have. The second aspect of the Christian worldview is referred to as fall, or we might call it sin. Although created in moral perfection, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's law, plunging the human race into a natural state of alienation from God. Every human being on this planet knows there is something desperately wrong with us. We all know the world needs to be fixed. The Bible identifies the problem as sin. That is, it identifies the problem as disobedience to the Creator, the very thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. This is what the problem is. This is the Bible's interpretation of what's wrong. It doesn't skirt the issue. It doesn't say you're just dreaming. It's all an illusion. That doesn't say it's situational. You can make up any moral standards you want and let them all conflict. It says there is a problem, but that problem is we are alienated from God, having chosen to disregard His will. Remember chapter 2, verses 15 to 17? God says, do not eat of this one tree. Let's go to chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Obviously snakes don't talk. There is a possession here on the part of Satan, but it is possible Adam and Eve don't know that snakes don't talk. They haven't had the history that we have. And it is clear that they're dealing with a creature, not with someone who's overwhelming them. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation is there to disregard what the Creator said. Don't eat from the tree, this tree. Satan says, go ahead, 
It's not going to hurt. In fact, it's going to be good. You can find a better way than God's way. So, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, think about all those things in relationship with God. God is a delight. God is to be desired to make one wise. But setting the love of God aside, she sees in this fruit, this forbidden fruit, a love other than the love of God, and she takes of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. Here's the results. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There was a, a, a new self-realization that was not very beautiful. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Something terrible had happened. Adam and Eve lived in this perfect environment, in flawless harmony, in intimate fellowship with God, yet they figured they could do better on their own terms. Created to represent God, to honor His will, to commune with Him, Adam and Eve are found where? They're found running from the presence of the Lord. And running through every page of the Bible from this point forward is the story of fallen humanity living in rebellion against the will of God. It does not take long for this rebellion to reach epidemic proportions. We go a bit further in the history to chapter 6 of Genesis in verse 5. Notice the Lord's analysis of where people have come born from Adam and Eve and living out their life in this world. Genesis 6 and verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This is far more than an ancient account. Turn, if you will, please, to Romans 5. In verse 12, what has happened in these ancient days, we find is in fact wrapped itself around the heart of every human being. Romans 5 and verse 12, here is the Bible's answer to the problems in this world. What is the source of all the mischief? Chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam did something to us. We've done something to ourselves. We all choose the sin that Adam chose. It has many different forms, many different ways now. It's not one tree any longer. Indeed, it seems as if the entire world is filled with sinful choices, but we make those choices. We do what God has said not to do. We choose the way of greed and the way of bitterness and the way of lust and the way of self-centeredness and the way of war and anger and backbiting. We choose these ways against our Maker's will. The analysis of today, where are we at as God looks at the world today? Chapter 3 of Romans, verse 10. It's not a very pretty analysis. Chapter 3 and verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not sinners because one day we choose to sin. We are sinners because it is our nature to sin. We are bent to it. We don't teach newborns to sin. We don't teach young children to do what is wrong. It comes by nature. By nature, we run from the reality of God and we labor to bring glory to ourselves, just like Adam and Eve. We run and hide in the trees when God shows up and do our own thing all along the way. Active submission to the will of God is not our first priority. Well, so what? What does it matter? What's the issue? Well, as the Bible describes it here, as we've seen it, the the issue is death. Eternal judgment under the condemnation of God from whose goodness the lost are separated forever. It's very serious, and it's the reason that we have in this world ongoing war, and ongoing problems and injustice and the like, and the reason why at the end of it all we die. Because the wages of sin is death. Now we can reject the fact that there's a creator, but if we will grant the point for the moment, the one who brought us into being is saying, the reason you're dying is sin. The reason you're dying is because you reject me. There's a place of alienation. So we say in summary, rather than live our lives to glorify God, we naturally suppress the truth of His creative power, disobey His moral laws, and worship false gods to our own destruction. The unrelenting human history of war and murder and disease, suppressing the truth of God's creative power, disobedience to our Creator, has fixed itself around our hearts. We are alienated from Him. This dark picture moves to the third aspect of the Christian worldview, and that is referred to as redemption. And here we find great hope. God has intervened in human history to provide redemption from sin to everyone whom God enables to place saving faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Immediately following Adam and Eve's sin, God graciously started to work a plan of redemption. It's not all over. But in Genesis chapter 4, immediately we have two kinds of people that show up. Two brothers. One kills the other. And the parents of Abel, who is killed, give birth to another son by the name of Seth. And right there from the start, we have two lines of people. Genesis identifies a godly line of believers from whom a Messiah would be born, who would crush Satan's head. A chosen line of people that God would bring to a place, bring to the one who would address this sin problem. Now there's a common complaint in our day. I I hear it fairly routinely as I talk to people. Why does God not remove evil? If God is a good God, why doesn't He just make everything right? Why does He permit the evil to continue? We need to be very cautious of what we're asking. God can remove evil. You know how you remove evil? You remove sin. 
Guess how you remove sin? You remove sinners. God could make this world perfect in a moment of time, but it would cost the life of every sinner. So God graciously, in his patience, is waiting until that day will indeed come. His patience will run out at a certain place in time. But now, there is opportunity for sinners to be reconciled to God. For those bent against Him and alienated from Him, from those who by nature are hiding in the trees to come out into the light of God's presence and to receive His forgiveness. As God works this plan of salvation from sin in the Bible, we are alerted to two emphases that run like a thread through the Old Testament pointing forward. The first is a sacrificial system. We can't take time to read that, and I'm going to keep my promise that we're only going to look at three books, Uh, but we could go through all of the Old Testament and look through a sacrificial system where animals died in the place of sinners. Sinners would put their hands upon lambs who are then, whose throats were slit and they would feel the life leave the lamb and they would, by placing their hand on the lamb, identify themselves with that lamb. I should be dying where the lamb dies. It wasn't a perfect system. No one thought that it was. But it was a way of saying the wages of sin is death and I'm a sinner and I'm coming to God, giving away this lamb and saying thereby, that I am seeking the forgiveness of God. That's one theme. The second theme is messianic prophecy. There is a constant pointing forward to one who will come through the godly line of people and will address sin ultimately. The Messiah's this anointed one, this coming one. We have prophecies concerning his lineage, his birthplace, his virgin birth the time of his birth. And all of these prophecies are strung throughout the centuries so that people could never possibly coordinate the plan. There's hundreds of years between some of them. They don't know each other. But through the years, these prophecies are strung together, pointing us to the one who would address sin. Indeed, pointing us to the one who is the ultimate Lamb of God, who will die in the sinner's place. Now not an actual lamb, but now a man. It points us without question to the first chapter of the New Testament. In fact, there's a dramatic pause there. If you're familiar with this, the Old Testament ends and there is four centuries where there is no word from God, no revelation of God. And where does Matthew start? The first book of the New Testament starts with a genealogy. Identifying Jesus Christ as the son of David, as the son of Abraham, as the one prophesied to address sin. Romans chapter 1. And verse 16, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, as we consider this one, Jesus Christ, Paul writes here to the Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What's the gospel? Have you ever heard of that? Could you define it? The gospel is a Greek term, simply means good news. 
it is speaking about a specific act or specific work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It involves two basic ideas. First of all, his death as the Lamb of God on a cross to pay the penalty of sin, and his resurrection in victory over death and sin and judgment. Jesus Christ physically died, though he was not a sinner, in the sinner's place to pay the ultimate penalty of sin as God. He also physically and literally rose from the dead, showing that he has the power over the very thing that's crushing us. He defeated the cancer. He took it out by going into death and coming out on the other side in resurrection power. This is the good news that Paul is speaking of. This is the gospel. Notice how what Jesus has done, his death and resurrection, how this applies to the individual. Chapter 3 and verse 24. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. We are justified Verse 24 says, chapter 3, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, we don't use the word propitiation every day. It's not a recess word, you know. You don't hear that often. What's it mean? Anyone who heard the word propitiation would say, I know what that is. That's sacrificial system. Propitiation is the satisfaction of the anger of God against sin. God's anger against our wrong is satisfied, how? In the sacrificial system by the death of an animal. But here we learn that Jesus Christ is Himself the satisfaction of God's anger against sin to those who believe. We are justified by not works, but by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, in the gospel, in his death and resurrection. Let's go to chapter 4, and you're going to hear something shocking, some of you. This is going to mess with your worldview big time. Because the Bible says something here that doesn't seem to settle very well with us. Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. Your paycheck comes because you, what do we say? You earned it. Right? Very simple. But now notice verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Did you hear the phrase, God justifies the ungodly? That is the opposite of what we want to hear. We want to hear that God is a just judge. And every just judge will justify, that is, declare righteous, those who are good people. We don't like a judge that declares bad people good. But God's saying you need to understand something here. God justifies the ungodly. He declares righteous those who aren't. Now, how can he be just and do that? David speaks of this very thing in verse 6, of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's not that we earn a righteous standing before God. It's that this and this is the good news that he will give it as a gift freely. 
He will take your sin, and over that sin, he will place the righteousness of Jesus Christ and put that on your account. He will give you that righteousness as a gift so that those who are justified are ungodly, but they are counted godly because of the gracious gift of God imputing his righteousness to our account. It's grace. It's goodness. It's the mercy of God. And it's something that is out of reach to everyone who says, I'm okay on my own. I'll work my own way to God. I'll go in my own righteous deeds. To everyone who has their little book writing in their mind all of the things that they have done to impress God, no one who has a hand full of that book can take and reach out to receive the gift of God's grace. It is all of grace and mercy. Jesus died for you. He died in your place to pay the penalty of your sin and rose from the dead. And those that he enables to trust and to believe reach out and receive that gift by his mercy alone. This is the good news. That God justifies the ungodly. But he is just because he poured out the wrath against sin upon Jesus Christ. Which is why we're here today. And why 2,000 years later, we celebrate and rejoice and sing. This isn't fair. It's grace. Chapter 5 of Romans and verse 6 spells this out a bit further. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, not justified by our works, but justified by his blood, by his death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This being spoken, of course, to those who put their trust and, and receive that forgiveness of sin. So let's summarize it. Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, yet of one essence with the Father, became a man, lived a sinless life, died in the sinner's place to pay the penalty of sin as a perfect sacrifice, and then rose from the dead in cosmic victory over sin and Satan. Secondly, Jesus died for the world such that anyone whom he calls to life and who thus places faith in Jesus for salvation is given the free gift of salvation. Thirdly, through this salvation, the sinner is reconciled to God by faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone. And that brings us then to this final idea of consummation. Let me state it quickly and we will not linger long on this point. But God continues to work his sovereign plan such that Jesus will return to earth, judge the living and the dead, set up his kingdom on earth, and eventually turn that kingdom over to the Father in whose presence believers will live forever. We find evidence of this in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. We have the coming of one out of heaven, 
Verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this isn't after the battle, this is before the battle. He comes in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This refers to Jesus Christ. It's the only one that will fit the description. And the armies of heaven, verse 14, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Verse 16, on his, his name is King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a reference to the return of Christ. Many mocked his first coming. He's never coming. For centuries, this Messiah thing is just stupid. And then he came. And there were people waiting. It's been a long, long time since he's left, but the promise is that he will come again, and when he comes, there will be people waiting. He has done it once. How much more obvious should it be that he will do it again when he says that he will? He will come back to set up his own rule and reign, which we can read about in chapter 20, but for sake of time, I'll just skip to the end of the chapter. Chapter 20, verse 11 of Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what he had done. So our works do not get us into heaven, but our works will stand to be judged before God, if that's how we want to go in. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The believer lives every day in the joyful anticipation of Christ's victorious return. We have reason to live a future to gain, and a confidence that all will end well no matter what happens in this life. But those who live out of touch with that reality, the Bible's view, it pleads with us to understand we'll, that person will stand in the presence of God and give account. You will enter into that presence of God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will give to you His righteousness so that you come in Christ's standing or you will stand before the judge of the universe in your own good deeds. And let me tell you, they are not going to stand up to that any more than a bale of straw in a forest fire. We've got to be ready to meet the God who has called us into existence and who has spelled out to us the future. Let me quote at fuller length from the evolutionist William Provine as quoted by Colson I mentioned earlier. This is what he says in, at greater length. Listen to it in light of this worldview. No life after death. No ultimate foundation for ethics. No ultimate meaning for life. No free will. The only reason, that's his, that's his motto, the only reason anyone still believes such things, Provine says, is that people have not yet grasped the full implications of Darwinism. 
Now, the Christian worldview is not an attack on Darwinism. Please understand that. It's actually the other way around. There were centuries and centuries and centuries where people believed that there was a creator. Darwinism has been an attack from the beginning to tear down the idea of a creator God. Why? Because if there's no creator God, there's no accountability. Did you hear what this man said? There's no foundation for ethics. That's a nice way of saying we can live any old way we want and get away with it. May I suggest that he's more out of touch with reality than those two doctors that were fighting over a dying patient. We cannot live any old way we want and get away with it. There is a view that is right and there's a view that is wrong. We cannot all be valid on this point. As C.S. Lewis wrote, the Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. One, that there's a creator God. One, that there isn't. One, that our problem is a violation of our creator's law. And the other is that ethics are situational and can adjust to whatever and we're all free to live however we want to live as long as we can just get along with each other and not kill each other, which we keep doing. One is that there is no answer, that there's no hope, and the other is that there's an answer in Jesus Christ. The Christian and the materialist, Lewis says, hold different views about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is wrong will act in a way which simply doesn't fit the real universe. And when people fail to believe and act in a way that does not fit the real universe, people get hurt. Eventually, every reality denier will come face to face with God. So I would call upon each one of us in the depths of our heart to embrace this worldview to embrace the message that God has given, that He is our Creator, that we owe Him our life and our obedience, that our joy and all goodness is in Him. Secondly, to embrace that we are sinners and that sin places us under the condemnation of God by nature. Thirdly, that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of sin and rose from the dead and will, as we place our faith and confidence in His death for us, Give us his righteousness. What have you done to break the law of God? How have you violated his will? How have you walked away from God? Good news is you can be forgiven. No matter what it is, no matter how you have sinned, you can be forgiven of your sin and brought back into a reconciled relationship with God. This is the beauty of the cross of Christ. It's a heavy beauty because it demanded the death of the only perfect person who has ever walked this earth. But there's a beauty in it and God calls us to trust it actively, to rest our faith and our confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's bow for prayer. Father, words fail us to know how we might possibly give you thanks and praise for what you've accomplished in Christ and how you sit us down as the creator and sustainer of this universe and teach us the truth. 
We acknowledge that there is rebellion in our heart. We want to write things our own way and do things our own way. Trust in ourselves and glory in ourselves. But I thank you, God, for the straightforward revelation that we find here. And pray, God, that our faith would find rest in it. For anyone who knows you not as Savior, I pray, God, that these thoughts would stir up the wonder, perhaps even just of the question, could it possibly be true? Is it too good to be true? Lord, only you can open eyes to see it as the truth. And I pray that you would do that. And I pray for those who have embraced this truth that we might help others along as we can because we know it's not by works of righteousness that we're saved, but by your mercy. May we, as those who have received mercy, be faithful in proclaiming to others the mercy that you have demonstrated in Christ, in whose name we pray.